This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, August 7th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Daniel Davis. Obamacare is old news on the political left. Now the big item is Medicare for All, a single-payer, government-run health care system. But what kind of impact would that have on Americans' lives? Today, we'll talk about that and more with the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Seema Verma, who joins me for an exclusive interview. Plus, the New York Times caves to pressure from the left by changing a front-page headline, putting Trump in a more negative light. We'll discuss. And if you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Following the deadly shootings over the weekend in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, news emerged Tuesday that gun control advocates had surrounded Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's home on Sunday night, calling the senator a murderer and talking about killing him. In a video posted by Ben Goldie, a communications director on Capitol Hill, one protester says she hopes someone, quote, just stabs the MFR in the heart, please, end quote. The gathering, which organizers called a, quote, emergency protest, took place right outside McConnell's Kentucky home, where he's been recovering after falling and breaking his shoulder, according to the New York Post. Ohio's governor, Mike DeWine, a Republican, put forward several proposals on Tuesday aimed at protecting against future mass shootings. The governor is proposing background checks for most gun purchases, more access to mental health treatment, heavier penalties for gun-related crimes, and what's known as a red flag proposal. Red flag laws allow law enforcement to temporarily remove guns from someone who is deemed a threat. Meanwhile, Congress is also looking at red flag proposals at the state level. Senator Lindsey Graham on Monday said he'd struck a bipartisan deal to write legislation offering grants to help states carry out their red flag laws. The Pentagon isn't worried about missile tests from North Korea, at least not yet. On Tuesday, North Korea launched two short-range ballistic missile tests and condemned the U.S. and South Korea for moving ahead with a two-week military exercise. This was the fourth round of weapon launches in the last two weeks. But Defense Secretary Mark Esper took a cautious tone, saying, While we take these launchings seriously, we monitor them, we try to understand what they're doing and why. We also need to be careful not to overreact and not to get ourselves in a situation where diplomacy is closed off, end quote. In regard to the military exercises, Esper said, quote, We've made some adjustments after the president's meeting last year, and we're still abiding by those, and again, in order to be open, in order to open the door for diplomacy, but at the same time, we need to maintain our readiness and making sure that we're prepared, end quote. Meanwhile, North Korea is threatening to take a, quote, new road if its demands for, quote, dialogue are not met. The Chinese government is warning Hong Kong protesters over their persistent demonstrations. Hong Kongers have taken to the streets by the hundreds of thousands over the last couple of months in protest of a Beijing-backed bill that would allow those arrested in Hong Kong to be extradited to mainland China for trial. That bill has been put on pause indefinitely, but not withdrawn. Some of the protests have recently devolved into rioting and vandalism. On Tuesday, China's spokesman for Hong Kong and Macau affairs, Yang Guang, said at a news conference, quote, Those who play with fire will perish by it. Don't ever misjudge the situation and mistake our restraint for weakness, end quote. He also said the protesters were entering very dangerous territory. John Huntsman, the United States ambassador to Russia, announced in a letter on Tuesday that he is resigning from his post. 
Huntsman said, quote, American citizenship is a privilege and I believe the most basic responsibility in return is service to country. To that end, I am honored by the trust you have placed in me as the United States ambassador to Russia during this historically difficult period in bilateral relations, end quote. Huntsman's resignation takes effect on October 3rd. Well, up next, we'll explore the effects of Medicare for All with CMS Administrator Seema Verma. Tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger government? Become a part of the Heritage Foundation. We're fighting the rising tide of homegrown socialism while developing conservative solutions that make families more free and more prosperous. Find out more at heritage.org. Well, I'm joined now in the studio by Seema Verma. She is the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Administrator, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Healthcare remains such a, a concern for Americans, a top issue um, for voters, uh, according to the most recent polls. And some on the left are now addressing that by proposing what they call Medicare for All, which would fundamentally shift who's in charge of uh, healthcare decisions. You actually administer Medicare and Medicaid as they exist today. From your perspective, is this Medicare for All proposal the right way to go? What kinds of changes would people feel under that approach? Well, as the head of the program, I am very deeply concerned about these types of proposals. First of all, this is Medicare is a program that our seniors have paid into their entire lives. And now we're talking about putting 180 million people into this program. So stripping away private coverage for 180 million people and putting it into the program that was designed for them. So I'm concerned about the impact on seniors directly, but it's also taking away this private coverage, which most Americans are happy with their private coverage, and they shouldn't be forced to be in a Washington, D.C.-run program. The other main concern with this is that when um, the cost of this is going to be very expensive for the country. Some of the estimates coming out is that this could be a $32 trillion program. So the more expensive that the program becomes, that means everybody's paying higher taxes. When you're paying higher taxes, then it puts the government or Washington bureaucrats in a decision-making role where they have to figure out, well, you know, uh, what kind of uh, coverage should people have? What kind of benefits should they be covering? And those decisions then are made in Washington, D.C. Um, so that that concerns me in terms of the decision making. You know, we want to see patients and families in control of their health care, not the government, not D.C. bureaucrats. Um, and when they're in that type of decision, what we've seen in other countries that have tried these types of programs is that that leads to rationing of care. And it leads to long wait times. So what we see in other countries, that's why a lot of people will come from other countries to get care in America because they can know they can get ready access to it. But in other countries, whether it's Canada or the United Kingdom, in those countries, they could wait for months to get routine services that Americans can get very readily. So that that's one of the main concerns that I have. Yeah, you mentioned access to care, and that is something that here at Heritage we've found in our talking to people about their concerns when it comes to health care is being able to access the doctor when they need it and their fear being that they'll lose that access when they need it the most. How would Medicare for All affect people's access um, you know, you mentioned countries like the United Kingdom, where there's, 
you know, over four million people on their waiting lists and and long waits, sometimes a year and a half for for necessary treatments. Is that something that people should expect under a Medicare for All proposal? Yeah, and I think it actually could exacerbate access issues that we already have today in some of our public programs. So if we look at the Medicaid program today, because providers are paid under government rules, so government price setting, prices set in Washington, D.C., a lot of providers today won't even see patients on Medicaid, won't see patients on Medicare, and they're kind of moving to more of a direct pay situation. And so um, now if the entire market is being paid by government rates, providers don't even have the ability to do, you know, to have some income that's more appropriate for them under commercial reimbursement. And so you could see providers sort of turn away from the government programs, which is going to exacerbate access problems. That's actually what gives me the most concern for our beneficiaries. These are people that have paid into the program their entire life, and now we're asking them to get in line and wait for care. I just think that's you know immoral. Well, a lot of talk, uh, obviously, about Medicare for All, but less focus uh, has been given to the people that are actually part of that program now, American seniors. Um, What's in it for them in the Medicare for All program? What happens to their care? Well, one of my main concern is that they're going to face access problems. They're going to face long wait times, and they're going to be subject to potential government, Washington, D.C., rationing of their health care services. This is a program that was designed uniquely for them. Um, what we're hearing from the Medicare trustees is that the program is already on shaky financial ground. Um, the trustees are indicating that in six, seven years, we're going to run out of money in part of the program. So, you know, the, our administration has been focused on protecting the program, strengthening the program, making it work better for seniors. Um, I think these proposals threaten all of that and could expose them to more, you know, higher, you know, longer wait times and rationing of care. We want to make sure that we're creating a program that's sustainable over the long term and putting 180 million people into it, not going to solve that problem. Well, another proposal being discussed is the public option, uh, basically letting people under the age of 65 buy into traditional Medicare. You recently wrote an op-ed about this in the Washington Post, uh, and you referred to the public option as a Trojan horse with single payer hiding inside. And I want to ask you about that. Why is this proposal just as concerning to you as the full-fledged Medicare for All? I think these are all versions of more and more government. That's what we're talking about. More and more Washington-controlled health care, one-size-fits-all, where the government is making decisions about your, your care, not you, not your family. That's, that's what the discussion is today in, in all of these types of proposals. Um, I think the public option in particular is problematic for a, for a few reasons. Number one is, you know, people are saying, hey, if you want to be able to get a public pr- program, you should be able to get one and look how well these public programs are doing or they're going to be cheaper and less expensive. Well, the reason why public programs are less expensive is because we pay doctors less. In the Medicaid program, 30% of doctors won't even see a Medicaid patient, and those numbers are rising every year. And so that's a, that's a concern that a public option would not have the type of access that people are used to. They wouldn't be able to have that choice of doctor. Um, they wouldn't be able to go see who they want to see because that provider may not be in the network. The other concern is that when that happens, where there's lower reimbursement, providers are going to react by increasing their charges to those folks that are still commercially insured or through their private insurance. So that could actually mean rising premiums for everybody else in the market. Um, You know, we've tried these types of, you know, what I'd say, D.C.-based solutions 
Um, if you look at Obamacare, for example, that's a great example of where the government stepped in and took over the individual market. And let's look at the results of that. I mean, the results have been, whether you like Obamacare or not, the simple fact is rates went up by over 100% across the nation on average. In some parts of the country, they went up by 200%. Um, for people that are not subsidized today, they can't afford health insurance. And people are you know, leaving the individual market. Millions of people are, are leaving because they can't afford coverage anymore. Um, and then choices went down. So Obamacare created monopolies across the nation where there's only one insurance company and they're just increasing rates every year. So I think there, you know, I think there's broad acknowledgement that Obamacare didn't work, doesn't work and won't work. And that's why people are looking for different solutions. But it seems surprising to me that we're doubling down on big government, big D.C. government solutions, which have not worked in the past um, we need to move to a system where we have a competitive free market environment. And people say, well, the free market, it's not working, and so let's do more government. But the reality is we haven't had a free market. We have, you know, the government controlling almost 46, 47 percent of health care to begin with. And we don't have an environment where there's full transparency on pricing um, and there's and the competition is not there. We want to create an environment where providers are competing for patients on the basis of cost and quality. Well, another major development in healthcare is personalized care, where people can get tests done that tell them about their particular uh, body's health problems and, and their needs based on the genetic makeup. Um, this kind of innovation holds real promise for patients in the future. How would single payer um, or Medicare for all uh, impact these kinds of innovations that are really helping patients? Well, you know, all of us use the healthcare system from time to time. Um, I know my husband has a, a serious cardiac condition, so I'm, you know, very concerned about making sure that there's innovation for anybody that that's dealing with a disease. You always want to know that there is the hope of of innovation and treatment and cures that are going to address your situation. Um, the concern I have is that the government has already had problems in the area of innovation. If we look at the Medicare program, um, it has problems with approving new treatments that come to market. You know, one example is um, insulin pumps for diabetics. There were insulin pumps in the market widely used in the private market. But when people would, you know, age into the Medicare program, the pump that they had been using for years was not covered by Medicare. And the reason why is because Medicare is prescribed in law, and it takes an act of Congress sometimes to provide coverage for innovative treatments. The law was set up so long ago, and it hasn't been updated, and it says you can, you know, you can pay for supplies and you can pay for durable medical equipment. But technology is changing so rapidly that um, sometimes it doesn't fit neatly into uh, the buckets that Congress has set up. And so the agency gets stuck, and it took years for the agency to figure out how we can cover these pumps that were widely available in the private market. So if we didn't have a private market, you wouldn't even have that type of innovation. And I think that's an important point because if the private market, which is more nimble and paying for new technology, if they're not paying for these things and we're only relying on the government, innovators aren't going to make those investments because they're not going to get paid for them. A couple of other um, examples are you know, some of the new cancer treatments that we've had with CAR-T. Um, these new treatments came out. Private sectors started to pay for it. 
when they first came out, Medicare was not paying for it. Um, it was a covered services people were using for it, but Medicare didn't have a rule or regulation to pay for it because it was so new and so innovative. The agency's trying to figure out, is this a process? Is it a drug? And because of that, because they have problems paying for new and innovative treatment quickly and rapidly, that creates access problems for patients. Those are some of the things that the Trump administration is actually trying to address. The president wants to strengthen the program. He wants to um, make it work better for seniors and address some of those issues. But if we create this bottleneck situation where any every innovative device in America has to come and ask permission from one D.C.-based agency, I think we have a real problem um, in terms of uh, creating investment in this country for innovation. Well, it's no secret that doctors are increasingly frustrated with uh, the practice of medicine, particularly the regulations that keep them stuck on paperwork when they'd rather be uh, delivering care to their patients. Um, And some younger doctors and practitioners say they like the idea of single payer because they think that'll simplify the payment process and cut down on, on bureaucracy and paperwork. Is that an accurate expectation, or are there better ways to address their concerns? Well, one of the things that I remind doctors of is some of the major issues that they're facing today have been created by DC policies. Um, I th- the issue of physician burnout and moral injury are very real, and I'm deeply concerned about this. We're hearing rates of increased physician suicides. Medicine has typically attracted some of the best and brightest um, in our country into this field. And now what we've turned them into is doing a lot of paperwork, a lot of bureaucracy, and a lot of that, the vast majority of that has been created by D.C. government policy. So if we look at, you know, for example, um, we look at the MACRA program. You know, that was a program that thankfully we got rid of the SGR, but now we're requiring our doctors to report all of these process measures that don't mean anything to them and don't mean anything to patients, but the government's putting all this extra work on them. So they're seeing patients during the day, they're reading medical journals, and then they have to sit and read all of these different regulations to be able to to, um, comply. The other thing that because of um, the way the government, a lot of government policies over the last 10 years have created an anti-competitive framework for doctors where government policies pay hospitals more than they pay doctors for the exact same service. And so that's why you're seeing all these hospital systems buy up physician practices and physicians are losing their autonomy and they're not independent practices anymore. That's going in the direction where you have more and more employed physicians. So I think that's what's creating a lot of frustration in the field. But the, the root of that is has already been government policy. You know, you hear things that are, you know, you hear folks say, well, they're going to have less paperwork. Well, the government still requires authorization for services. The government still requires a lot. So that's that's not going to go away. I'm concerned that the government has not been sensitive to the impact of all of its regulations onto doctors and putting them in a position where they can control everything is going to make it worse for our nation's best and brightest. Well, we've talked about the healthcare system as a whole and competing uh, systems like Medicare for All, which of course would require Congress to act in a major way. Um, but as a member of the executive branch, uh, what is the Trump administration doing right now to improve our healthcare system? We saw recently uh, that you made several announcements, uh, one of them on tr- price transparency. What are some of these things that uh, you're able to do from the executive branch that are improving things? Sure. 
Well, our administration is focused on making sure all Americans have access to affordable, high-quality care. And unfortunately, that's not the situation today. The concern is that people are thinking, we just need to have the government take over and do everything, have the government pay for everything, and all our problems will be solved. That's just going to increase taxes. I think the discussion needs to focus on how are we going to address rising health care costs in our country. The reality is the last 10 years of government intervention and D.C.-based solutions haven't produced anything. They have not lowered the cost of health care in our country. And because of that, so many people can't afford it. Um, I think the conversation from our administration standpoint is we're addressing the underlying uh, drivers of health care costs. That's why you see President Trump so focused on the issue of drug pricing, because that's where we've seen rapid acceleration in health care costs. Um, big move on price transparency. We want to empower patients with the information that they need to make decisions about their health care. They should be making those decisions, not Washington bureaucrats. Um, We want to make sure they have price information, they have quality information, and they have access to their medical record. So the announcement on price transparency was requiring hospitals to post all of their negotiated rates. And that way, when people are going in for a service— um, there are many of our healthcare services that are predictable. Not all of them are urgent. And so in those situations where you know you're going to have a procedure, um, a surgery, whatever that is, you should be able to go on a hospital's website and see what that's going to cost. It'll allow you also, the way we've set up our proposal is uh, it'll allow you to look at other hospitals and to make comparisons. So do an apples to apples comparison. So I think this is very, um, it's very innovative. It speaks to the president's bold leadership. A lot of special interests won't like this, but our administration is about doing what's right for patients. Well, this is a very informative and insightful, and uh, it's great to know what the executive branch is doing on this. Uh, Administrator, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Do you own an Amazon Echo? You can now get the Daily Signal podcast every day as part of your daily Alexa flash briefing. It's easy to do. Just open your Amazon Alexa app, go to settings, and select flash briefing. From there, you can search for the Daily Signal podcast and add it to your flash briefing so you can stay up to date with the top news of the day that the liberal media isn't covering. Well, on Monday, President Trump condemned white supremacy and racism in response to the horrific weekend shootings, and the New York Times reported accordingly. The front page headline from the Times on Monday was, Trump urges unity versus racism. But for a number of liberals, that was not acceptable. Too positive a spin for the president. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted her disapproval, saying, quote, Let this front page serve as a reminder of how white supremacy is aided by and often relies upon the cowardice of mainstream institutions, end quote. Meanwhile, Senator Cory Booker tweeted, Lives literally depend on you doing better, New York Times. Please do. And New York's mayor, Bill de Blasio, also tweeted, quote, Hey, New York Times, what happened to the truth is worth it? Not the truth, not worth it, end quote. Well, others said they would be canceling their subscriptions to the paper. And it wasn't long before the New York Times changed its headline in response. The new headline was, quote, assailing hate but not guns. A Times spokesman told the Washington Post the headline was bad and has been changed for the second edition. Rachel, your thoughts on all of this? 
I mean, I think we all know none of us are strangers to the fact that at least for us who, you know, try to, you know, stay abreast of all of the issues in today's news cycle and try to follow a various, you know, variety of mainstream outlets and also alternative outlets, we don't bully news sites into you know, what their coverage is and say, oh, like, this is too liberal, this is too conservative. And I think it's kind of hypocritical for the New York Times, especially who, I mean, I would, they, I mean, I think a lot of us would take issue with maybe some stories they write, and I think it's our prerogative to take issue with that. But for them to kowtow to politicians and change their headlines, like, this is not what a news site is. They're supposed to be reporting the facts not writing opinion or commentary, essentially, that basically leading politicians are comfortable with and sign off on. That's just completely wrong. And Nate Silver, I think they had embedded his tweet in uh, the piece in the Free Beacon, I believe, that you we were, were talking about right now. Nate Silver is the editor of 538. He's editor-in-chief. And he said, um, he wrote, quote, not sure Trump urges unity versus racism is how I would have framed the story. And it's like, you're supposed to be reporting the facts, not framing things for consumers. I mean, I don't know. That was the issue I took with it is this should be reporting. There is a place and a space for commentary, but this is not that. I mean, this is supposed to be news. Yeah. I mean, you can frame stories in all kinds of ways. And obviously, um, you know, President Trump was, if you just read his speech and listen to what he said, he was literally condemning, you know, racism and white supremacy and that kind of stuff. Um, What I thought was interesting is, a lot of folks had been urging him to do that for a long time. Like Senator Booker, who tweeted uh, about this uh, headline actually earlier in the year, was you know criticizing the president for uh, not explicitly condemning white supremacy after other racist attacks had happened. Um, and he he did. Like this week, he condemned it. And so I just kind of would expect there to be more of a you know positive appreciation of that. Um, but I guess a lot of people think that you know. Trump, by his very nature, is just oozing white supremacy. So anything he says to the contrary is just, you know, fake, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And it needs to be, I think this goes to show there needs to be less editorializing and just more reporting of the facts. And I think it is a shame that the New York Times caved. And I mean, hopefully other news sites don't follow suit because we're, that's going to be sad to see if we're, we're our editors are being like, oh, let's check what Twitter's saying and maybe we'll change our headline. Like, that's not how this is supposed to be working out. Right. I just thought it was funny how if you if you read some of the tweets and people like, you know, faith loyal New York Times readers and subscribers are really upset at the Times. They were like, this is the last straw, New York Times. You're just whitewashing the whole thing. Like, when does how when has that been happening? Never. <laughs> like, it's Times, like, are you do you even read the paper that you support? <laughs> it's like living in a different universe, you know, like the Times is not this bastion of like, you know, conservatism by any 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 stretch. But anyway, just shows you how different uh, our perceptions can be when we, you know, triggered much. We only when we only read one paper and you know nothing else. Yeah. Well, we will leave it there for today. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast, brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, and please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.